This is not the media. This is hell. Who knew that we elected Alex Jones as president of the United States? Turns out President Trump is now employing strategies Alex Jones perfected when Jones claimed he was a victim of voter fraud by not being allowed to vote. As a former employee of his admitted to the New York Times Sunday magazine in an article earlier this year, Jones and a cameraman would go into polling places with the camera running, which is illegal in Texas, where Jones was polling this stunt, and he would be confronted by angry election officials for breaking the law. Jones knew this would be the reaction, was fully aware of this act being illegal, and would lead to him being turned away. And just like that, he could show and tell his listeners and viewers that he was denied the right to vote. Now President Trump is using the exact same stunt, an Alex Jones stunt, with illegal partisan poll watchers entering facilities where, by law, they are not allowed. That's right, the President of the United States has stooped to shock jock stunts in order to intimidate and mislead the voting public. Now I'm just waiting for him to, you know, do lesbian dating game. See, we were kidding. This is hell, and on today's show, the police state has gone global. And it's not just the police state of cops busting down doors without warrants and busting heads of peaceful protesters. This police state is far more pernicious and nefarious. No, it's not the police state... We all feared would arise, like in Orwell's 1984, a government gone mad and controlling every aspect of our lives, always keeping us under their eyes of surveillance. No, this global police state is far worse because it only exists, it thrives when government is absent, when oversight evaporates, when democracy is pushed aside for profit. The global police state is one in which our humanity is lost in inhumanity and the lack of caring if others live or die becomes normalized, even legitimized. With our world economy now dominated by a small group of wealthy elites that represent an even smaller number of corporations, those interests are now ratcheting up the violence they need to keep their profiteering off of the end of the world in place. Even worse, we already have the technology to make our planet a worker's paradise. We just refuse to implement it. Our guest today, returning to This Is Hell, is sociologist William I. Robinson, author of The Global Police State. William is professor of sociology, global studies, and Latin American studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. This will be William's second appearance on This Is Hell. He was on back in July of last year to talk about his then-just-published work, Tempest, Essays on the New Global Capitalism, which you can find right now by going to thisishell.com when you search on Robinson. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth, live-stream, podcast, radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing, as always, is Alex Jerry. Alex, please remind our listeners, while I take off my sweater, please remind our listeners what this week's question from hell is. This week's question from hell is, what is at the bottom of your downward spiral? What is at the bottom of your downward spiral? Oh, and uh, Chuck, I got you a birthday present. What's that? I got you a birthday present. Really? Yeah, but because uh, my kid's sick, so I just sprayed it down with bleach, and it's sitting on top of a trash can outside my door. <laughs> that birth- seems sanitary. Happy, happy birthday. Oh, uh, well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Uh, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question mail wins our new gray on black. This is Hell Trucker's Cap. You can check out the new gray on black. This is Hell Trucker's Cap and all our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer on our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have it by the end of today's show. Following our guest, Alex, will have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell. Again, what's at the bottom of your downward spiral? What's at the bottom of your downward spiral? Did you make Springle? Uh, no, not yet, because I'm wondering in my uh, grand design to dominate my wife in this cookie competition, <laughs> yeah. if actually Anna's seed baked shortbreads is maybe not going to win gonna a lot work. of votes. No, it's not going uh, to. If, you're, uh, if you haven't listened to this before, uh, the only thing that's keeping me going to the end of the year is uh, my wife and I couldn't decide on what kind of Christmas cookies to make to give to like our friends and family. Uh-huh. So we're competing. Uh, each of us are making three different types of cookies, uh, splitting a box and then giving everyone a ballot to text back to determine who has uh, the <laughs> best cookies. And I'm, like, determined to just crush her. Are you going to make uh, pepper caca? No. Oh, I love pepper caca. Yeah, I, if, I was, uh, if I was making it for your household, maybe we'd have a lot of anise and pepper in these cookies. But uh, <laughs> I'm out to win the, win the people on this one. <laughs> 
keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996. This is Helen. If you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to tomorrow's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams live at 10 a.m. Chicago time every Friday in his podcast, same place shortly after. This week we got the sad, sad news of the passing of filmmaker, journalist, novelist, political activist Andre Vichek. So we are sharing our February 26, 2005 interview with Andre, who is a senior fellow at the Oakland Institute. Andre was on at the time to discuss the aftermath of the earthquake that decimated the semi-autonomous Indonesian province of Aceh. He had just released the report, Aceh Abandoned the Second Tsunami, on how the world responded to the disaster and then immediately left without providing any sustainable assistance and left to the hands of the brutal Indonesian government and their brutal leader, Suharto. Andrew was very familiar with that kind of brutality as he directed the 2004 documentary released about a year prior to the interview we will be playing tomorrow called Terlina, Breaking of a Nation a documentary on the Indonesian mass killings of 1965 and 1966, which was conducted by the government of Indonesia, which was being supported by the United States. And the United States did not stop that support simply because they had two years of mass killings. Also on Patreon tomorrow, my birthday is this weekend, as Alex was saying, and I'll be celebrating what is likely to be a... (sighs) What it's like, I should say, to be a Wednesday child, which, according to the old nursery rhyme, that just may have triggered my lifelong battle with depression. In case you don't know, the nursery rhyme says, Wednesday's child is full of woe. So, either nursery rhyme is an accurate predictor of our entire lives, or it made me believe I was left to a horrible fate of sorrow. Alex, do you know which day of the week you were born on? No. I have no idea. Look, I have... look it up. Go look it up, and then I'll tell you later oh, on which, you know which child you uh, are. I've been having a rough day. It didn't occur to me that I could look up on what day of the week. <laughs> I just saw your email, and I said, no, I don't know that. But uh, yeah, geez, I suppose uh, somehow we've kept track of that, haven't we? Yeah, so just take, yeah, take put, a look. yeah, put it in there, and we'll see what day, what kind of child you are. I was so depressed when I was a kid because one of the first books I got had this nursery rhyme on the cover of it, on the back cover of it, and it would sit there on my table, and I would see that. Wednesday's child is full of woe all the time, and a man, talk about a downward spiral. So did you figure out what day it is yet? I'm still looking. All right. Either way. Oh, I'm a Thursday child. Oh, so Thursday's child has far to go. Great. <laughs> I don't know what I'm so, t- I'm so tired now. I can't go anywhere. <laughs> Either way, it's my birthday, and I'll be talking about that, and we'll be playing our 2005 interview with the late, great Andre Vitchek tomorrow on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Thanks to our newest subscribers on Patreon. Thanks to Eliza F. and Andrea S. Andrea writes, hey, Chuck and Alex and everyone else making this possible. Thank you for your beautiful work. Much love from Belgium, Andrea. Much love back to Belgium, Andrea. Late last night, we got an email from Kevin B., who shares his thoughts on the choices we are being offered in this presidential election. Kevin says, it's such a dire catch-22 that we are being presented with. Here we have Mr. Chump, the embodiment of of an Ann Rand wet dream come to life and all the ugly, sick, racist crap that he has stirred up. Fascist, pure in form, the Il Duce of America. And then we have Biden, the lesser evil of two lessers. He'll do the bidding of the corporations that have donated to his campaign, fracking, big oil, Wall Street, etc. I don't blame anyone who's fed up with the whole process. You can get frustrated with voters who can't support either of them. But the choice was in the primaries. We had a clear choice of Bernie Sanders, the complete opposite of Mr. Chump. But the corporate media went with Biden. That being said, there's still Mr. Chump and his disgusting effing clan bake rallies. If he gets another term, we will all know what it's like to live in a third world country. Biden is not the best candidate. He's not the best candidate for the democracy we have, but not the best for what we need. I am still with the Bernie voters and their anger, but the bust will be way too big a price to pay. And if boss tweet does steal another one, it may come down to Mr. Kurtz's final words from the heart of darkness. The horror, the horror, exterminate all the brutes. Sincerely loyal fan Kevin, maybe that's a book worth revisiting at this time, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, or maybe Nostromo by Joseph Conrad and its story of colonialism. So listeners, 
What fiction do you think is worth reading as we approach what will be a contested election with the president's poll watchers trying to intimidate voters into not voting, threats of an armed white supremacist uprising, and the very real potential of small penis races, racists shooting their fellow citizens? Listeners, what's good fiction to be reading at this time? Email us your suggestions at chuck at thisishell.com. Chuck at thisishell.com. And we will show, share them here on the show. Also, William Burroughs' Cities of the Red Knight, because of the pandemic, that's probably a good thing to read right now. Chad also sent some great guest suggestions. One, Vandana Shiva. Two, someone responsible for that Michael Moore documentary about how reduced consumption is the only answer to, to the energy crisis. Chad, we have had Vandana on the show before, but you can only find that interview right now at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash thisishell, because it was prior to 2015 when our archives start. Uh, so we've shared that on Patreon, and you can find that there. Also, as far as this documentary, Michael Moore documentary, which wasn't even a Michael Moore documentary, look, this is hell, but Chad, why do you want me to watch a really bad documentary on climate change finally we got an email following yesterday's show from tyler the artist who sent us the painting of what apparently is a meme as alex informed me after the show the painting is of two astronauts looking at earth one is saying this is hell with the other responding always has been while pointing a 45 at the back of the inquiring astronaut's head alex shared the image on social media yesterday tyler writes hey fellas i recently listened to an october 2019 episode of my other favorite podcast true anon (laughs) that's a title in which they interviewed a guy named timothy faust about his book called health justice now single payer and what comes next super informative regarding the obstacles we face in the fight for universal health care and what true sea change in that realm could mean for america i haven't read the book yet but it was a great interview and he seemed like a fitting guest for this is hell i did a quick search on the website and on your website and i didn't find anything under his name so my apologies if he's already been on keep on keeping on tyler tyler thanks for the painting first but for whatever reason the name Timothy Faust, it sounded familiar to me, so I looked him up online and remembered why I knew the name. Faust had an article at the Baffler entitled, He Doesn't Have a Plan for That, Joe Biden's Healthcare Solution is a Remix of Failed Ideas. If, and it's a huge if, if Joe Biden is elected, the second he is determined the winner, Timothy Faust would be a fantastic guest for the show. We're being told by people like AOC and even guests on our show that if Biden is elected, he can be pushed to the left. With Trump's re-election, the left is, again, completely sidelined. And sure, the left will have more influence on a Democrat than a Republican, but that's what we were told when Obama was elected. And the left was then silenced by Democrats, MSNBC, liberals, and everyone who was actually excited by an Obama presidency as they threatened that Obama would be a one-term president, as if it was more important to get a second Obama term than getting things like, you know, the end of the U.S. fighting in the forever war, universal health care, the scaling back of fossil fuel extraction instead of opening up more land to extractivism, a real commitment to fighting climate change, the end of prison privatization that incentivizes incarceration with profits, expanded immigrant rights, and the breaking up of the banks and huge corporate oligopolies. Instead, we got more wars, more land open to oil drilling, expanded use of fossil fuels every year, more private prisons, a deportation machine, banks that are bigger and more powerful than ever than they were even when they caused the 2008 financial crash, and more and more centralization of the economy into fewer and fewer hands. While I certainly hope things have changed, if Biden wins, count on the Democratic Party and their friends at CNN and MSNBC telling the left to stand down and do not stand by, or else we only get four years of Joe Biden. Of course, this policy path is perfect for the next far-right president to be elected and to exploit, just like Trump exploited Obama's centrist policies. So there's that. Also, this is from Timothy Faust's bio at the Baffler. Timothy Faust is the general manager of Party World Wrestling, America's largest and dumbest wrestling party in Austin, Texas. So yeah, wrestling and healthcare. Sounds like a great discussion. Coming up, The global police state is even more frightening than the police state we see crushing protests. We'll also have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what's at the bottom of your downward spiral? What's at the bottom of your downward spiral? 
Live from the United States where property has more rights than people, this is hell. When we consider the problems with policing, we think of the officers in body armor or those without any insignias on their uniforms so we cannot determine in what agency they're affiliated with or who the officer actually is, which eliminates any possibility of holding the officer accountable for their actions, actions that include attacking peaceful protesters. But there's something far more frightening happening, and it's happening all around the world. Here to explain, returning to This Is Hell, sociologist, scholar, activist, writer, and theorist on global capitalism, William I. Robinson is author of The Global Police State. Welcome back to This Is Hell, William. It's uh, so great to have to be back on. Thank you. Hey, I just wanted to thank you, first of all, because last year, our most downloaded show of the entire year was our interview with you from back in July. Listeners can find that right now by searching on your last name, Robinson, at com. So thank you for appearing on our show. Pleasure. I wish it was. I wish I, I wish this was not such a grim and dangerous moment to be on your show, but that makes the discussion all the more urgent. Yeah, and perfect for this as hell, too. So right before we went on air, a listener contacted us on social media writing, I can't wait to hear William Robinson on the global police state. When I traveled through South America, it occurred to me that when police have military weapons, there is an active, if everyday, state of war on the general population. Do you find that to be a fair assessment? Are militarized police at war on the citizenry? Absolutely. All around the world. Militarized police, um, armies, paramilitaries are at war. And that, of course, is the military and the coercive dimension of global police state. You know, the listener you just mentioned that called in was talking about South America. That's really a great jumping off point for me to read a quote for us to begin this discussion of global police state, because your listeners will know that there was a coup d'etat last November in Bolivia, in the very heart of South America. And so we've, and what is, what is, how is Bolivia more recently inserted into the global economy? It's through lithium production. So uh, um, a a couple months ago, Elon Musk, this sociopathic billionaire, um, was had written something on Twitter. He wrote that the um, he was talking about the government stimulus package and he said the stimulus package is not in the best interests of the people. So someone then on Twitter responded to Trump and said, you know what, what what isn't in the best interests of people? The U.S. government organizing a coup against Evo Morales in Bolivia so you can attain obtain the lithium there. And Musk Musk wrote back, and this is the exact quote, we will coup, that is coup d'etat, we will coup whoever we want, deal with it. So here you have this perfect illustration of global police state, bringing it all together. You have transnational capital in the form of this sociopathic transnational capitalist. You have him calling on US and Bolivian militarized state power, uh, police and power military and military forces. And you have this fascist mobilization in civil society in Bolivia, just like we have in the United States. And let's remember, you know, when we talk about this, um, Musk himself, um, during the pandemic, it was just announced, has increased his wealth by nearly 300 percent. He's worth nearly a hundred billion dollars now. So that tells us another story of global police state is that the increasing centrality of tech capital not just to the global economy, but it's the tech, it's technology, it's computer information technology and the new digital technology dominated and controlled by Musk and by Amazon and by Google and so forth. That is absolutely central to deepening and extending uh, global police state. So it all comes together with this um, particular personification of one of many sociopathic billionaires. So but that Musk story, uh, you know, you knew about it. I knew about it. But it wasn't on CBS, NBC, ABC. It wasn't on Fox or CNN. It was part of what I was calling earlier this week a a propaganda of omission, where it seems like the media just ignores some of these kind of more imperial statements made by the wealthy elite. So uh, what is the media's role in the global police state? Can the global police state happen without a complicit media? No, absolutely not. Well, we know that when we talk about media, we're talking about corporate media. We're talking about big business. Right. We're talking about the rulers of the of the global corporate media are part of the transnational capitalist class that cross-invested and integrated with global uh, finance capital, with the military-industrial complex, um, uh, with tech capital. Uh, they're deeply invested in global police state. It's the, it's the role of global corporate media and Hollywood, by the way, and we can get into this later in the interview, to legitimate 
global police state, to legitimate global capitalism and its savage inequalities and its perverse anti-human uh, logic. And without that role of legitimation and without that role of controlling the flow of information and images and blocking off information and images such as um, such as um, Musk's criminality with regard to uh, Bolivia, that global police state is even possible. And, you know, this control, this um, the transnational corporate media is not news, of course. At best, you can call it infotainment. But it's really propaganda. It's global capitalist um, uh, propaganda. But that ideological, uh, informatic ideological dimension um, is, uh, is just one component of global police state. And it's also central to the new 21st century fascism that we need desperately, uh, urgently, to confront and beat back at this time. I'm glad that you mentioned the new 21st century version of fascism. What mistake, what errors do we make when we only look toward the 20th century of fascism as being the defining, the definition of what fascism is? Right. Well, um, that's that's actually that's a big mistake. We've been having this discussion. I've been writing about the dangers of 21st century fascism since 2006, 2007, and especially since the crisis of 2008, because that crisis uh, both generated a popular revolt from below, which is still going on and deepening, but it also really accelerated the um, organization of these fascist forces around the world. But there's plenty of parallels. What, well, let's first talk about, I mean, the, the um, parallels with 20th and 21st century. We want to remember that fascism, whether in its 20th or 21st century variant, is a particular far-right coercive response to the crisis of capitalism. And right now, and I want to get into this later into the interview, because really the starting point for talking about global police state is the crisis of global capitalism. So fascism in either last or this century is a particular far-right response which seeks to rescue capitalism from its organic uh, crisis, to violently and coercively restore capitalist profitability and suppress any challenge to, uh, during times of crisis um, to the to the, the 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 system. The other thing that's similar between 20th and 21st century fascism, then I want to get into the differences, um, is that um, the ideology and the politics of fascism is the same. The, the content of fascism, we're going to get into, is slightly different. But you have this discursive repertoire of fascism. It's crystal clear with, with Trump. I mean, I heard you right before you got me on. You were you're talking about, um, um, about Trump. Uh, xenophobia, mystifying ideologies that involve race and culture supremacy, whether in the United States today or in India. Uh, the idealization of a mythical past, a racist, racist mobilization. You don't have fascism without a racist mobilization. Uh, extreme chauvinistic nationalism, this concept of national regeneration, millennialism, that a new dawn is going to arise, this far-right fascist utopia. And of course, extreme militarization and militarism and a masculinist culture. And um, what we see in 21st century fascism, and this is where the role of the mass media, the mass corporate media that we were just talking about, makes it a little bit distinct than in the 20th century, is how um, the, the global pro the propaganda machine um, normalizes and even glorifies war, social violence, domination, contempt for the most uh, vulnerable. Okay, So the key thing in both 20th and 21st century uh, fascism, though, is that you can't have fascism without organizing a mass social base. And of course, that mass social base was so-called Aryans in um, Nazi Germany, and everyone that's not part of the social base, part of the in-group that fascism seeks to recruit and to mobilize, of course, is subject even to genocide, to violent exclusion, uh, othering, and in some cases, such as Nazi Germany, uh, genocide. But here's the key thing, though. Uh, what is the social base of fascism right now, 21st century fascism in the United States or elsewhere. Well, that is privileged sectors of the working class that were privileged in the 20th century. In the United States, this is disproportionately white and disproportionately male. Um, the, the experienced stability, upward mobility, good jobs, uh, socioeconomic security in the 20th century, and capitalist globalization really takes off in the late 20th century. And what it does is that it destabilizes and undermines the stability, the security of these more privileged sectors of the working class in the United States. Again, disproportionately male, disproportionately um, 
dis disproportionately white. And this is the social base now that fascism seeks to mobilize. Uh, these downwardly mobile, destabilized, uh, largely white members of the working class can respond by fighting against the system, by joining forces with everyone else from below to challenge the system. Or they can be mobilized by fascist discourse and, and, and forces and organizations from above, and here Trump, Trump is the key spokesperson, to have a, um, to, to identify the, the crisis as scapegoats. Um, and so this is the key role of fascist mobilization. It promises to restore stability, and security to relieve mass social anxiety. Of course, it can't come through with this premise. And that's the key difference also I want to, and I'll conclude with this, I want to make with um, 20th and 21st century fascism. Uh, 20th century fascism did offer some material benefit to its social base in the sense that the availability of jobs were expanded in Nazi Germany, social welfare systems were put in place, even as the as the, those that were part of the fascist base had to have iron discipline, couldn't question anything. Uh, but there was some material payoff. But currently, given capitalist globalization, extreme levels of inequality, total corporate domination, there's no material payoff. So it's entirely a psychological wage, which fascism in the United States, or for that matter in India and elsewhere, offers to this would-be mass base. And that's one reason why for so many years now he's not talking about it, he's talking about other things. Now he's talking openly about um, Proud Boys and how they should get ready militarily. But for three years, he just foamed at the mouth, build the wall, build the wall. Well, the wall is irrelevant to, to um, controlling uh, migration or to anything else, but it's symbolic. And it's that, um, that essential role right, of um, diverting so mass social anxiety towards some external enemy. And that symbolic role of build the wall and other such rhetoric, which is really central to this fascist mobilization. So I think I've gone in a little more too detail, maybe a little too much um, analytical and theoretical rigor, but I, I would love to, uh, if we can, uh, talk more specifically about what I mean by global police state. Yeah, I mean, well, I'll get to that in just one moment. I just wanted to ask mm -hmm. you real quick, um, what would you say to those uh, who are supporters of global capitalism that uh, suggest that the in instability it has caused was simply an unintended consequence? Well, instability is an unintended, unintended consequence of global capitalism. That's true. Global capitalism... It, and the transnational capitalist class has only one objective and to maximize and accumulate profit. Right. And but the side effect of global capitalism is always sharp social polarization, incredible inequality, which then generates um, instability. And, it, and capitalism, by polarizing wealth, by making it impossible for the vast majority of humanity to even survive, generates resistance. And that resistance and then resp from below and then res repressive response from above is a dynamic which generates instability. But capitalists, the transnational capitalist class, would love to be able to simply maximize profit and accumulate endlessly and have the rest of humanity just shut their mouths and take it, and then there wouldn't be any instability. So, you know, in that sense, it is, you know, capitalism generates this instability, but but not because the rulers of global capitalism want instability. On the, on the contrary, they want to stabilize the system of domination and endless accumulation of capital. But they can't because the system is so chock full of contradictions, explosive contradictions. You were saying that we are the global capitalism right now is facing a crisis. Just so our listeners understand. How can global ca capitalism be facing a crisis when the stock market is through the roof? We were talking to Fabian Scheidler earlier this week, and he said the planet is in a crisis because the stock market is through the roof. How can global capitalism be, have, be facing a crisis right now with the stock market so high? Yeah, well, let me get to the stock market in just a minute. And let me place it in context. But the stock market doesn't indicate indicate the health of the global economy or the health of the vast majority of humanity. It uh, simply indicates how the rulers who have accumulated the capitalist class that has accumulated so much wealth is playing around and speculating with their wealth. Uh, there's no relation between the real economy of production and goods and services that, uh, that people need and that people want and the, the um, conduct of the, the behavior of the stock market. But let's talk about this crisis of global capitalism. Um, it predates the pandemic. The pandemic did not cause the crisis. It only aggravated it many times over. And uh, among the many dimensions, two we need to highlight. One is the structural dimension, which is chronic stagnation in the global economy. The stagnation has been building up for the last 20 years 
years. It's more what we more technically called a crisis of overaccumulation. And the other big dimension here is the political dimension of the crisis of global capitalism, one of state legitimacy and of capitalist hegemony. These two dimensions, this structural dimension of stagnation, the political dimension of the crisis of legitimacy, have to be linked to the incredible, unprecedented escalation of global inequalities in the last few decades. I'm sure the listeners are familiar with this data that 1% of humanity controls at this point over 50% of the world's wealth. But the more significant uh, figure there is that 20% of humanity controls 95% of the world's wealth. That means that 80% of humanity has just 5% of the world's wealth. And under those conditions, that 80% faces death, destruction, uh, and inability to simply survive uh, day, day to day. And now comes the pandemic. And, the pan and, and uh, through the pandemic, capitalist states are simply unable to cope with the crisis. They're exposed as instruments of wealth and of corruption. And so this pushes states to intensify, at this time, global police state. So that leads, if I may, to what I mean by global police state, because I think this concept is essential to understanding where we're at in October 2020. And... Um, I mean three things by global police state. The first is the extension and deepening and building up of systems of transnational social control and repression and warfare. And that's dimension number one. That's um, the political need that the ruling groups have for global police state to crush any resistance, any actual resistance taking place or any potential resistance of surplus humanity and of the global working class. But the second thing I mean by global police state is that increasingly building up systems of trans of global repression and social control and militarism and warfare becomes a strategy for accumulating capital and making profits in the face of this chronic stagnation of in the global economy. So what what we see here is that global police state involves a convergence of global capitalism's need for social control and its economic need to perpetuate profit making in the face of stagnation. And finally, what I mean by global police state is the increasing rise of these systems, political systems of 21st century fascism. So if we take these three elements together and we have to see how they're intertwined in the new ways that signals a new and an extremely dangerous phase in global capitalism with the crisis, the severe crisis as its backdrop and as the world descends into a repressive totality. So that's what I mean by global police state. And if we get a grip on this concept, then we're in a better position to fight back, to be back global police state. And when we do think of fascism, far too often we think of state fascism, as in George Orwell's uh, 1984. And you quote, uh, uh, Every, Everything is Known, a book by Liza Elliott, in which she writes, George Orwell got it wrong. Big Brother did not come from a totalitarian state, but from a totalitarian non-state. What has a greater capability or capacity of being a threat to freedom, the state or corporations, government or big business? Or is that kind of framing... A mistake by separating the two as distinct entities opposite of one another. Absolutely, it's a mistake because the state is not just the state. The state is the capitalist state. It is a capitalist state. The role of the capitalist state is to shore up and defend and advance capitalism. And there's an organic, intimate relationship between the capitalist state and the capitalist class that runs the capitalist economy. Uh, and in, we are living at this point in the, in the most brutal, most powerful dictatorship the planet's ever seen, the dictatorship of transnational capital, of the transnational capitalist class. I mean, anyone that follows even the most minimal politics in the United States sees this plain and clear, although this is in every country uh, in the world. It's Wall Street that dictates what Washington is going to do. It's the military-industrial complex Silicon Valley that dictates what Washington is going to do. And so you have you have to analytically, and I don't want to get into this theoretically here, but you have to analytically separate the state from capital, um, from, from, from capital, from the transnational capitalist class. But in the actual prax, pra, practice, how global society functions is the state is an instrument of transnational capital advancing its interests. And so when the state represses, when the state uh, imposes global police state, whether it's in Portland, whether it's right now in India, where, whether it's in Bolivia, wherever it is, it is doing so in the overall interests of assuring the hegemony and domination of uh, capital, but you know, I'll add one other point there. As long as you're on your your point, as long as you've you've observed that fascism is in the first instance capital, 
And in the second instance, it's what the state does to defend capital in a fascist uh, way. Because really, a fascist project involves a three-way triangulation. And that triangulation is, on the one hand, you have... Um, transnational corporate power, capitalist power, uh, right-wing capitalist power. Secondly, you have that fusing with reactionary and repressive political power in the state. So Trumpism in the United States, Modi in India, and so forth. And then the third wing of a fascist project, and this is critical, is a fascist mobilization in civil society. So that's what we're seeing now, that third wing really kicking in, these far-right fascist forces taking to the streets in Portland, getting ready for an armed insurrection if Trump uh, loses or if Trump calls on them, and so forth. And that's what makes this moment so dangerous. You see the same thing in India. You see this repressive state in the Modi, the Modi state and the ruling, and the ruling uh, party. Um, and you see, of course, um, that the policies of that state and the practice of that state are shoring up the most transnationally powerful wing of the Indian capitalist class, a thug class, um, a vicious class. Uh, and then you see this fascist mobilization in civil society in India led by the RSS and fascist organization in civil society that goes back to the 1920s that was inspired by um, by Mussolini. And you see everything in India that you also see in the United States, that fascist mobilization involves scapegoats in this India, it's Muslims and, and lower castes. Uh, here, of course, it's um, yeah, immigrants, uh, blacks, uh, anyone increasingly that imposes Trump. We are speaking with sociologist William I. Robinson, author of The Global Police State. You can follow William on Twitter at W underscore I underscore Robinson. You can find our earlier interview from July 2019 with William at our website, thisishell.com. All you have to do is search on William's name. Again, the name of the book, because you all need to get this book, is The Global Police State. When you talk about police state, you mean, as you write, considerably more than what we typically associate with the police state, police and military repression, authoritarian government, the suppression of civil liberties and human rights, and you develop the concept of global police state to identify more broadly the emerging character of the global economy and society as a repressive totality whose logic is as much economic and cultural as it is political. So in the protests that we are seeing here in the United States and around the world, how much do you think those protests are about policing and how much do you think they are about the global police state, whether the protesters realize that or not? Well, it's both. I mean, immediately there is a challenge from below, the most significant challenge in a very in a very long time. Um, and so the immediate the most immediate repressive aspects of global police state need to bear down and beat back that challenge from below. Uh, but there wouldn't even be a global police state. This apparatus wouldn't even exist. Those protests wouldn't exist if we did not link that this uh, most visible repressive dimension to the larger structural issues of global capitalism. And, you know, one of the uh, we all 100 percent support and are out in the streets with, with this anti-racist uprising, but very little of the 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 uprising in the organization for it is linking um, police violence and is linking state repression to global capitalism. And that's what we need to do so we can more, so we can expand um, uh, our, our resistance. I've developed in the book, as you know, you've taken a look at it, the concept of militarized accumulation and accumulation by repression. And again, what I mean by that is even as the global police state is necessary to repress revolt from below in the face of this unbelievable inequality, it also is increasingly necessary as a way of accumulating capital and making um, profits. So I have have, you know, I've spent six years researching this, and there's this wealth of shocking empirical data I came up with. Um, it's in the book, and I'd like to mention some of it because it is so revealing. Yeah, please September, go ahead. Yeah, September 11 of 2001, of course, was a turning point in global police state. It ushered in a much more sweeping militarization of the global economy and society. It brought us to a global war economy, which is now uh, deepening. And in this regard, the global war economy, global police state is immensely profitable for transnational corporate capital. The Pentagon budget increased from 1998 to 2011 by 98%. Worldwide, up to 2015, military spending by states increased by 50%, representing then 3% of the global of the uh, gross world product. But that does not include state secret budgets, police, intelligence, homeland security budgets. Those are billions and billions of dollars more. If we add that in, my estimate is five to 6% of the whole global economy is um, just this militarized spending. But that also 
does not include private corporate spending on repression and social control and warfare simply to make uh, profits. And increasingly, not just warfare, but all forms of repression and social control are privatized. So just to give you a couple of, of examples, um, in 2018, private military forces, that's mercenary forces, employed 15 million people worldwide and were op operative in every single continent on the world, being hired by corporations to repress populations, to open up new resources for corporate plunder. Private police now uh, number 20 million people in the world are private police. That's more than public police forces in one half of the countries around the world. The biometrics industry, which is now has so central to global police state to monitoring and surveilling us and controlling our movements and therefore controlling us, is currently worth 35 billion, but is going to go up to the hundreds of billions in the next few years. G4S is the world's largest private security firm with 660,000 employees worldwide. It's the third largest corporation in the world after Foxconn and Walmart. There's also been a rapid increase worldwide in private prisons. And of course, because the prison population is skyrocketing worldwide because uh, the popular classes from below are being criminalized and locked up. So there's 200 private prisons currently around the world in every continent. It's the most fastest growing sector of um, pr the prison system uh, worldwide. In the European Union, they initiated, the European Union initiated a so-called border security program earlier in this century, which really took off after the Arab Spring. And this was not because the refugees and the uh, uh, fleeing into Europe represented any threat to Europe, uh, but simply because it was this new way of accumulating capital and making profits. So European Union spending on this border security program increased an unbelievable 3,688 percent between 2005 and 2016. And this is not state spending. This all went into private transnational corporate coffers. And there's also now amazingly, uh, uh, frighteningly, a multi-billion is going to go into the hundreds of billions of dollars, global riot control systems market. That's what the capitalists call it. Um, a, the global, and let me read this, this, um, you know, this shocking, uh, Quote, this is Lo Lloyd's of London. This is a report they issued last year. And they wrote, Lloyd's of London is this big financial and, and, and insurance firm. Uh, instances of political violence contagion are becoming more frequent and headed towards political violence pandemics. Super strains of political violence include anti-imperialist and independence movements, social movements, those movements calling for removal of an occupying force, mass pro-reform protests against national governments, armed insurrections inspired by Marxism and Islamism, and so forth. Of course, that super strain of PV includes us right now in the streets fighting against uh, racism. But then the report went on to say that, therefore, the um, global riot control systems market is going to dramatically increase in the, in the coming years. That means that transnational corporate capital wants people protesting in the street because then you can repress them and make incredible profits, wants wars, wants coups in Bolivia simply as a way of making profits. So this just gives you a tiny idea. The book, of course, is full of massive amounts of data in this regard. We haven't even gotten into the role of Silicon Valley or the role of, um, of Hollywood as a way of, on Hollywood, you make profits by doing the ideological and cultural work of global police state. So, you know, I could go on and on, but it gives you an idea of the global police state is not just repression. Uh, against the popular classes, the working classes, the oppressed groups. It's also big, big business becoming more and more central to the whole global economy and society. Cory Booker, Senator Cory Booker recently said of the Supreme Court nominee that he was going to try to speak to the Republican Party's morality for them to reconsider pushing this nominee forward. You write, there are growing movements against the many expressions of global police state, mass incarceration, police violence, U.S.-led wars around the world, the persecution of immigrants and refugees, the repression of environmental justice activists, yet often these movements are based on moral appeal to social justice, which by itself begets at best mild reforms. Why does a moral approach not work and only lead to mild reforms? Because I'm hearing that within the uh, anti-policing movement as well. 
Absolutely. This has been a serious shortcoming. Again, we all support the anti-racist uprising. We participate in it. I've been a, uh, an activist in the immigrant justice movement for, for quite a number of years, and we have the same problem in the immigrant justice movement. It's simply this moral appeal. And the moral appeal is very important. It mobilizes people. It identifies us as, uh, you know, our, our humanity to be morally um, outraged. But it's not enough because we have to understand why, to begin with, there's a war against immigrants. Why, to begin with, we have deep structural racism in the United States. Why, to begin with, we have this incredibly repressive apparatus. So we have to answer those questions. To answer those questions, we have to go beyond the simple moral argument, and we have to start analyzing what causes these forms of repression, what causes this inequality. And when we ask that question, we have to identify the nature of the global capitalist system. The entire world is now capitalist. There's no socialist bloc. There's no pre-capitalist areas in the world. The whole world is global capitalism dominated by, as you put it right before I came on the program, Ever, you know, with power concentrated in ever smaller minority, the transitional capitalist class and the political agents in capitalist states that represent their interests. So we have to critique capitalism as the system which is generating these forms of repression, these wars against the people. And when we identify that, we have to move on to analytical and theoretical terrain. Um, and so just the moral appeal is, is not enough. And I mean, I think Cory Booker, I mean, you pointed it out there, imagine a moral appeal to, first of all, what morality? The ruling groups have no morality. Their only morality is to increase their power and their profits. Um, but but we've got to de critique global capitalism. We have to identify that the larger enemy is not the police. Yes, the police are our enemy. They're out there cracking our heads and killing us. But we have to remember the police is simply a coercive arm of the capitalist state intended to reinforce and, and deepen and defend the interests of capitalism in the face of masses of poor and working and oppressed people. So for all of these reasons, we have to critique capitalism, so we have to have analytical and theoretical tools. And for that, we also need powerful polit socialist political organizations, which are not just raising moral arguments, but are showing masses of people how ultimately, if we don't overthrow capitalism, we won't be able to do away with the war against immigrants. We won't be able to do away with um, racism. We won't be able to resolve the environmental. We can do a little bit, but we really can't resolve the environmental holocaust. We won't really be able to bring about a humane, um, decent global society. So that's why I write that the moral appeal is important, but far from enough. Because of a belief that is held by far too many people in American exceptionalism and American innocence, it, it, it's a kind of belief that refuses to blame or criticize or analyze capitalism for any of our democratic shortcomings. So what, how much hope do you have that Americans will be willing to even have a critique of capitalism when it seems like it is above criticism here in the States? Right. Well, we have a long way to go, but I think we've already we're already moving beyond the untouchability of critiquing capitalism that we had in the late 20th century and the first maybe the first 10 years, the first decade of uh, of this century. Remember that we have um, I'm, in, I'm not going to say my age, but I'm certainly not millennial. I came way before the millennials. But we have these two generations. The data shows that millennials that, that 51, 52 percent of millennials prefer socialism over capitalism. And then there's generation I think it's called Generation Y, the ones that came after the millennials and they are and they're my students you know i have i give big undergraduate courses with this this court this quarter i have um 180 students in each of my two undergraduate courses 360 and they have such a bleak future and they're wide open to getting a radical message and it's and they are rejecting even more capitalism so i think this, i mean this goes back of course to two things it goes back to the cold war and the anti-communist crusade it also goes back to the tremendous failings of what was the first attempt at socialism in the world world, you know, the Soviet Union and everything that happened in the 20th century, those two combined really pushed us away from a critique of capitalism and a movement towards a uh, democratic socialist world order against capitalism. But that's over now. First, we had the 2018 financial collapse, and then we have the pandemic, global depression. Um, and all this time, inequalities are escalating. All of this time, any possibility that the vast majority of humanity has to secure a decent living, some state ability is, is evaporating by the day. I mentioned at the beginning of the interview that 20% of humanity is 95% of the world's wealth. But what I didn't say is that is the last few years, but that's rapidly changing. Increasingly, it's going to be 15%, 10%, 8%. So increasingly, even those that have 
uh, a job and can get by in the global economy, that 20% is now experiencing this destabilization, downward mobility, especially with the new digital technologies, which are replacing them, de-skilling them, uh, and, and so forth. Um, so, so, so I have a lot of hope for these young, for the younger people, but that's why they're in the streets and they're willing to sacrifice everything, even their lives. But they need the analysis and critique of capitalism. They are open to it. Can we uh, do the job? You quote a book that we, a couple of authors that we've had on the show before, Nick Smysek and uh, Alex Williams, and how they argue that we do have the technology right now to have the workers' paradise, the left utopian future. We have the technology in place right now. It's just not being used for that. What does that reveal to you? What What should that reveal to us about the global war economy when that technology isn't being used to have this kind of utopian future and instead is being turned on us for a global police state that's running a global war economy? Absolutely. That is this incredible contradiction. You just said it very well, and I quoted that author, and you mentioned a couple other ones, that the fourth industrial revolution technologies, I know we can't get into the details of that now, but all driven by a new, much deeper digitalization of the whole global economy, you know, of everything we do, of everything human beings do, uh, opens up this world of potential. We can eliminate suffering. We can create more leisure than work. We can, I mean, there's so much humanity can truly liberate itself. Now with these, the potential of these technologies, but these technologies are in the hands of the transnational capitalist class and the ruling elites. And they are developing this technology not to liberate humanity, but first of all, to make massive profits. And secondly, to control us and reproduce their own domination. So that is the contradiction. To resolve that contradiction, you don't change the technology. To resolve that contradiction, you change the archaic backward, repressive social relations of global capitalism in which this technology is currently inserted. You know, there's an anecdote. I'm writing a, a new book on global capitalism post-pandemic. And for that research, just yesterday, I came up, I found a report from Goldman Sachs. And it's shocking, but it illustrates exactly what you're talking about. Goldman Sachs was saying that gene therapy now has the potential to eliminate all of these diseases. And it mentioned specifically hepatitis C. And it mentioned a company that developed a gene therapy treatment for hepatitis C. I don't have the papers in front of me. I don't remember the name of the company. But the company had like $15 billion in profits when it started treating patients just a few years ago. But it completely cures the disease. And so its profits went down from 15 billion to 3 billion because everyone's being cured now by this new miracle gene therapy cure. So Goldman Sachs, which is one of the most powerful financial conglomerates and, and investor uh, groups on the entire planet, wrote this report saying, is there a contradiction, is, the, is, um, is um, uh, gene therapy going to undermine our ability to make profits? And they said, yes, we can't come up with these cures. We have to only come up with um, uh, ways, medicine, which simply ameliorates symptoms, which uh, 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 simply keeps people alive a little longer, because that's what's profitable. A complete cure is not profitable. So here you see that gene therapy could resolve so many problems of cancer, and who knows what else. And yet it will be blocked if it means that profit levels and capital accumulation will go down, if people will uh, simply be cured and no longer be paying the medical industry, the pharmaceutical industry, uh, the, the banks and so forth uh, for their medical treatment. So that really shows this, this disgusting contradiction between how these new technologies could liberate us and how on the contrary, in the hands of these ruling groups that turned against us. And within that contradiction is where you see the growing of the global police state. You write, it is in the nature of our species to work together to assure our collective existence. But the capitalist system that throws up a global police state turns such cooperation into a process of destruction for masses of humanity as we are made to compete with one another to survive. And you also add that if we are to recover our humanity, we must, contra capital, re-embed ourselves in relations of reciprocity and mutual well-being. Uh, William, I get a small-town weekly newspaper from northern Michigan, and every week the paper boasts of the good things locals do for one another and prides itself on how the area comes together in times of crisis. They'll report on 
number of meals neighbors provided to those in need, the amount mm-hmm. of food donated to food banks, all that kind of stuff where they're, they're really expressing their kind of collective nature. But despite all mm-hmm. of that, they're a devoted Trump voter base and their letters to the Your Opinion column of the paper often reflect a distaste for anything even suggesting community or collective. Why do those acts of reciprocity and mutual well-being not lead to an understanding of the importance of collective work and action? Why help others while at the same time proselytize against anything collective? Yeah, great question. And that leads also to discussion of the role of racism in undermining this collective cooperation, right? Uh, and intensifying competition. So precisely what is um, going on is, especially through the pandemic, is there's this new sense of solidarity. We're seeing worldwide how, we're, how those of us from below are all in this pandemic. And there's this bursting of solidarity and cooperation from below in the early months of the uh, pandemic. And we all know the slogan, only the people will save the people, meaning that we cooperate from below and that's what's going to uh, save us. So at times when solidarity bubbles to the surface and you see this in a natural disaster, whether it's an earthquake in Mexico City or a hurricane in, in South, the capitalist state may or may not bring some relief, but it's really the people from below that suddenly start cooperating in the immediate need to survive and identify with one another. But it's at times when there's this cooperation and collective identity bubbling up from below when the ruling groups have to intensify competition and division. And so that's why racism now becomes, and the racist ideology becomes even more important to the ruling groups at this very moment, because it pits uh, white workers with black workers, with Latino immigrants and so forth and so on. And the whites workers get a little bit of benefit they don't have, they're not subject to racism themselves, they get the psychological wages of white supremacy, a little bit of benefit, which is really in the long run against their interest racism, and they compete with black workers. And also, and so that, so you have the ruling groups have to deepen racism and other forms of dividing and pitting people in competition with one another at times of crisis, such as now when people otherwise would be coming together. And when they come together, of course, then identifying, uh, possibly leading to, to system systemic critique. And the other thing going on here with that is we have to see that global capitalism ideology is extreme, extreme individualism. The ideology and the culture of consumerism and individualism works against our solidarity with one another and our cooperation with one another. And if I may, Chuck, if I may just briefly link this to, because I didn't get to speak about it before, to remember I pointed out that the there's the role of Hollywood, of the entertainment industry, and the corporate media has been weaponized. And the Hollywood's role is the ideology and culture of global police state, not the direct repression, but how you legitimate it. And so. Um, they themselves, Hollywood firms, they profit tremendously from war and social control. But listen to this, because this shocked me when I came up with this, for the, when I found this out for the book, that U.S. military and intelligence agencies have influenced uh, over 800 major movies in the last few years and 1,000 TV shows. So Hollywood becomes this po- potent propaganda machinery for war and repression, but also for competition and for busting up sense of solidarity and collective identity from below. And just for so your listeners can hear, here's some of the films or TV shows that have been financed by and guided by U.S. war apparatus and the Pentagon and the CIA, Top Gun, Wind Talkers, An Officer and a Gentleman, Stripes, Independence Day, Jurassic Park, Black Hawk Down, The Hunt for Red October, Patriot Games, James Bond series, Hulk, Transformers, Meet the Parents, America's Got Talent, Oprah, NCIS, The Jay Leno Show, PBS Documentaries, a whole host of PBS Documentaries, BBC and all its documentaries, The History Channel, and so forth and so on. So this is what um, in advanced capitalist system like the United States, this is what the ideology and the culture that people are bombarded with. And it instills a sense, it, well, it, it, it totally obfuscates the real workings of capitalism against people, but it also instills deep sense of individualism, of competition, and and uh, and so forth. I mean, we can deepen that analysis greatly, but that, I think that's part of the story of what you're getting at when we are meant, our species is meant to compete with one another. We've become so successful, as, I'm sorry, to cooperate. We've become so successful because our the nature of our species for 200,000 years has been to cooperate and work together for collective survival. So you ask, why is that not the case now? Well, this is at least part of the story, is... Um, ruling groups from above dividing through racism and other mechanisms, but also this whole cultural and ideological apparatus of capitalism. 
One last question for you, William, even though I could speak with you about this book for another hour. Uh, Again, the name of William I. Robbins' new book is The Global Police State. William is professor of sociology, global studies, and Latin American studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. you got to check out his earlier award-winning books as well, 2014's Global Capitalism and the Crisis of Humanity, and his 2017 title, We Will Not Be Silenced. This is William's second appearance on our show. You can listen to our conversation with him from July 2019 by going to our website and searching on Robinson. You can follow William on Twitter at W underscore I underscore Robinson. One last question, as we always do. With our guests, William, our final question is the question from hell, the question we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer, mm-hmm. or our audience is going to hate your response. Is the forever war really going to last forever? Because the forever war is necessary in order to sustain global capitalism as well as the global police state, as well as the global war economy. And the reason I ask is, what happens mm-hmm. when the anti-war movement does not recognize or understand that we are in the midst of a global war economy? Yeah, well, not, this is not going to be forever because it can't. It will lead to collapse, collapse of global civilization. Um, but of course, that you know that, that raises the question of what what should we be struggling for? We're struggling against global police state. We're struggling against police violence. But what are we struggling for? You know, and that raises several issues. Obviously, we can't. I can't get in. We can't get into all of them right now. But it raises the issue of. Uh, we have this we have this disjuncture, this disturbing disjuncture between social movements that are bursting up all over the world, not just here in the United States, every corner of the world. Uh, people are getting organized, people are resisting uh, in the streets. Uh, but we have an extremely weak left, much less socialist left, an historically weak left. And the organized working class, uh, organized working class, that is trade unions are historically weak at this time because of course everything that's happened over the last few decades to destroy them. And so we really need to link these mass social movements, including the anti-racist movement right in the streets now, with organized working class action in trade unions, but also in other other forms of working class action, and with a left, a socialist left. And we have to have that triangulation to face this triangulation of fascism that I mentioned earlier. And we need to agree and work on a minimum program. I mean, so, I mean, we've all spoken about this, which is some of the dimensions of the program, a massive, for you know, before we even get to socialism, restore social welfare systems, including health and education, a, re, a progressive taxation rather than a regressive taxation, tax financial speculation, close tax loopholes and prevent tax uh, fraud, massive public investment, um, re, re, reintroducing state regulation of corporate capital and regulation of the of the, the the market. These are some of the demands that we need to unify across you know across different sectors um, as we uh, move forward. And you know I'll end with this: we desperately need a united front against fascism. Everyone uh, uh, is is talking about that. But what's important about saying that is that, and I know there's no time to get into this, I'll say with lightning quick. So we certainly have fascist elements among the ruling elites and they're gaining power very quickly. They're gaining ground very quickly. But we also, and then we have the um, neoliberal business as usual people, and that's Biden and Harris. And they're not helping at all, even though we need to get Trump out and Biden in and then start fighting Biden the very next day. But then the third group among ruling elites are these reformist elites that might sign on to a program of reform that I just mentioned. They won't sign on to revolution, but they'll sign on to program of reform because they want to reform capitalism in order to save it from itself, from its own crisis, from it being overthrown. So that means in this anti-fascist united front, we can form broad alliances, class and social and uh, political alliances with other sectors that are not necessarily revolutionary or from, from below. But at all times, We want to never subordinate the popular agenda from below um, to these um, cross-class alliances, these political coalitions against fascism. So I know I've just barely touched on the surface of what you were asking me, but I don't think, I don't know how much more time we have or... We're out of time. You uh, just uh, took the words right out of my mouth because I was going to say we've only skimmed the surface of your book. Again, the name of the book is The Global Police State. It's 141 pages. We just had a 48-minute conversation, and I'm telling you, we could have three more 48-minute conversations about this book. It is... Even though it's only 141 pages, it is thick with ideas and information. And William, I cannot thank you enough for the work that you put into this book, The Global Police State, and for being on our show again. It truly is always an honor and a pleasure to speak with you, sir. Thank you so much for having me on. All right. Take care and get ready for us to annoy you in the future as well.
<laughs> Sounds great. All right, take care. Live from lands stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. Alex, do you have the rest of this week's quest- answers to this week's question from Hell? Uh, yep, so you got a couple more minutes. This week's question from Hell is... What's at the bottom of your downward spiral? Jeffy D says, backwash. Krimsky K says, a mirror. Uh, Justin M says, rock. Chris L says, your mom. Okay, thanks, Chris L. Uh, Bradley R says, pretty hate machine, duh. John H says, an odd-looking neurotic rabbit with an absurdly large pocket watch. A Harvey joke? What year is this? Arnell G says, being trapped in a post-apocalyptic apocalyptic world's last nursing home. Oh, I read that one yesterday. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, so no, no, that was a good one, though. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Tyler R. says, the way things are going, 72 virgins. <laughs> that is really good. Uh, Chris A. says, Donald Trump branded punji sticks uh, via Twitter DM, email, all that kind of stuff. Uh, JP says, a half-eaten styrofoam plate of curly fries. Jason says, hurt to see if I still feel. Oh, boy, Jason. Uh, the foot of the stairs leading back up, says TL. Uh, Neil C. says, Soylent Green. Adam B. says, slumber party with Alex apostrophe mom but didn't add the s there so jokes on you adam b <laughs> uh ye hoax says why it's a brand new gray and black truckers cap yeah. what's at the bottom of your downward spiral cosmo says hopes violently subdued hypocrite reader says six months of unpaid leave to spend more time with my family <laughs> and rock taster says forgetting nine inch nails had an album called the downwards damn it <laughs> i should have never mentioned it finally uh, we got one last one uh daniel s says another downward spiral it's downward spirals all the way down <laughs> I really liked uh, The Way Things Are Going, 72 Virgins. I liked Brian saying a velvet trampoline. Uh, Joanne's MC Escher staircase animation. If it was a still, I wouldn't have liked it. But the fact that it was animated, I liked that. And I liked Mike saying a high-paying corporate position that feels rewarding to me personally and treats me well enough that I don't care to notice the damage I'm doing. Any uh, of your favorites in there? I liked uh, Spiral All the Way Down. Spiral All the Way Down. Who was that? That was uh, Daniel Daniel L. All right. We're going to go with that one then. Even though I also like Kyle saying a pointless orgy of violence triggered by hearing high hopes over the music system in an apartment store. So, yeah, it was the per- was the person's name again. That's uh, Daniel L. Daniel L., you are the winner of this week's question from hell. So you will be getting a gray on, new gray on black. This is hell trucker's cap in the mail. My answer to this week's question from hell. What's the bottom of your downward spiral? I don't know. But I think it's coming really really, really fast. Thanks, everybody, for sending in your answers to this week's question from hell. Uh, Anything else we want to mention? Yeah, we're looking for new board operators. We'll get to that later. All right, so we start every week's show by uh, sharing a hangover cure with you. This week's hangover cure is dark, leafy greens. Thanks to all of this week's guests, including political analyst Majed Mandur, who wrote the columns Sisi's War on the Poor and the Capitalist Roots of Egyptian Authoritarianism. Also, thanks to Fabian Scheidler, author of The End of the Mega Machine. That was a fantastic conversation. Fabian was amazing, and you should check out that book, The End of the uh, Mega Machine, A Brief History of a Failing Civilization. Also, thanks to yesterday's guest, Nick Dearden, director of Global Justice Now, author of Trade Secrets, The Truth About the U.S. Trade Deal and How You Can Stop It, which you can read for free at tradesecrets.globaljustice.org. And thanks again to today's guest, William I. Robinson. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon when we will be playing our 2005 interview with the late, great Andre Vitchek, and I'll be considering my birthday and what it's like to be a Wednesday's child and full of woe. There's only one way to get over get over all of the problems that we have introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.